Hallelujah. Can we praise him like he's worthy for just a few more moments? Can we lift up his name and tell him how great of a father he is? Can we extol him for his amazing salvation and his mighty grace? Father, you are great. You are perfect. You are mighty. You are mighty to save, as your word says, to the uttermost. We give you glory and honor for all that you have done and given. In the name of Jesus, hallelujah. It feels good here tonight. It feels like there's joy in the house. It feels like you are certain of your salvation this evening. I can feel the praise of the people, and I'm so glad to be here with all of you. Amen. How many feels good this evening? Amen. Praise God. There is a different spirit here tonight, and I feel it, and I'm thankful for it, and I honor each and every one of you once again. I know that you all work long hours, and you still came here tonight, and I want to give you honor for that. Thank you so much for putting on your clothes and getting in your car, and I know you're tired. I know that that's a real thing, and there's nothing wrong with feeling tired, but you still came to the house of God, so I give you honor, and I know that if it makes me happy to be in the house with hardworking people, I know that it makes God happy that you're here. So, so thankful for you. I honor the ministry of this church, honor pastoral leadership, honor them. So glad I get to be here with y'all. I um, feel a direction this evening again. And I want to be obedient. I, I realized that last night we talked about the seesaw and how we're born on one side of the seesaw or the other. And God is in our lives daily trying to bring us to the center of the seesaw. That's, that's what he's trying to do. And I talked about the part that's pulling people to the center. And I, I have to be faithful to his word. And I have to talk about the other side that balances us. We have to stay completely and perfectly balanced because we're on this, this seesaw, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a weak foundation. It's a strong foundation, but I have to talk about the full counsel of God. Amen? And so I want to be uh, committed to that, and I, I feel to talk about a little bit more this evening. I feel that that's appropriate. I feel that it's godly, and it's biblical. So I want to go to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1. I'm going to give you a chance to go there. First John chapter two, verse one. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. I love reading uh, from John. I love his gospel. I love his epistle. I love his revelation. And John is so unique to me because he is the only author in the entire Bible who gets a gospel, an epistle, and a revelation. It tells us that Daniel saw the things, saw the ancient of days, and the things which he saw were unlawful for him to write. And God told him, or the angel told him, to seal these things up and do not say them. The apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven, and he doesn't talk about what he saw, but John does. John was given permission. And I love this apostle of love, this prophet, this mighty man of God who used to be a son of thunder, and now he's talking about love. And let's, let's go read his epistle. It says in 1 John 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. To help you with the word advocate, it's the Greek word parakletos. It means a lawyer, a defense attorney. He's going to, he's going to fight for you in a courtroom. He's going to defend you. And the voice that he uses, the Bible says, 
is a voice that has better words than those of Abel. The blood speaks better words. Abel's blood will say, avenge them. His blood says, forgive them. You cannot beat the blood. The blood is strong. The blood is so strong that when you're beyond it, it doesn't matter how much death is going on, death cannot get in the house. So long as you are inside that house and blood's on the doorpost, there's not a chance on this planet. That's how certain the blood is. It says, and he himself, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Propitiation just means he was our substitute. He stood there. He, he did what should have happened to us. We deserved to be on the cross, and he stood in our place. So, verse 3, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. This is the balance. This is the other side of the seesaw. This is, this is what's going to keep us from leaning too heavy to the left side of the seesaw. We, I feel we've been pulled from the right side and we're coming center, but if we're not careful, we'll lean too hard to one side and we'll just tilt this thing because we, we have an issue I've noticed that we like to overcorrect. We do this as we're driving. If we're veering off the cliff, we jerk the wheel, and then we just hit the other side. It's far better to be a skilled driver and just pull this thing back in the middle of the road and get where we belong. And the Bible is working overtime to keep us from hitting the wall on either side. And so that's what I feel in the Holy Ghost to do tonight. It, I'll read it again. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The word perfected there means complete. It's, we're coming to a complete place. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, hear this, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I will tell you the perfect will of God for every one of your lives. Here it is. You ready? It is the will of God that you become like Christ. That is the will of God. I want you to stop focusing so much on, should I take this job? Should I do this? Should I do that? The will of God at the core is that you be like Christ that you walk like him, that you talk like him, that you act like him, that you are in him and he is in you. That is his perfect will. That's why John says, he's, this is such a balanced passage. He's, he's pulling over here from the right side of the seesaw and he says, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He was the substitute for us and he stood in our gap. But let's not run over here and say, well, he's gonna do it all. Let's stay sinner because if we love him, we're going to keep some commandments. And if we abide in him, we ought to, I'll use this phrase, we ought to act like him. And there are some things I know Jesus just won't do. And so I want to balance this thing out. And my goal in being here this week is to take every one of you and to put you on a road, a straight and narrow road, which leads to life. 
And the man that's at the end of the road that you are running after is the man Christ Jesus, the mighty God in Christ. And you're looking at him and you're saying, I want to be just like that man. But I have a strong warning for all of us that on this road are some deep ditches on the left and the right. And there are people that live in these ditches and they are constantly pulling at you and saying, join my ditch, join my ditch. And here's what I know, that when I step into the ditch, whether the left or the right one, I'm looking at the person across from me and I just have an argument of why my ditch is a better ditch than theirs, whether in this one or that one. But in this, all I see is the argument, and I don't see Christ. So what I'm trying to do is trying to climb out of the ditch and get in this position. It is a firm and steadfast, but it is narrow. And we're going to talk about that. I want to talk to us this evening about sanctification. I want to talk about that. So one more time, would you lift up your hands? Would you set your affection on things above? And here's your prayer this evening. Father, I want to be just like you. I want to spend so much time with you. I want to wake up tomorrow morning again like I did today, and I want to spend my time talking with you. I know you've been waiting all night to talk to me. I want to do it again tomorrow. I want to talk with you. Teach me what you're like. Show me what you're like. Let me feel your love, and when I feel it, let me go show it to somebody else. Let me feel your convictions, and let me live it out. Let me feel all that you are. Let me, let me learn from you so that I can be like you, for it is your will according to your word that I be conformed into the image of Christ. That is your will and God that's what I want because your word tells me that you want me to bear good fruit. Father I give you glory. I give you honor. I ask you one more time again do through me what you did last night. Lord edify your people. I pray that you would equip them. I pray that you set them on the road of discipleship and that there be Christians in this place. Father whatever you do tonight will be of interest intrinsic value because you did it. So I give you glory for it in the name of Jesus. Everyone say amen. Amen. You can be seated. Something interesting takes place in Genesis 2, 11. It says that God took the man that he formed, placed him in the garden, and hear these words, to work it and keep it. The will of God was to put someone made in his image into the world and ask him to do good, holy, godly work. There's no narrative in Genesis that God looks at at, at Adam and Eve and says, okay, I'm going to do all this for you. I'm going to do all the work for you. Just sit back and watch me. No, he placed man, and it is important to know that this is what heaven's going to be like. There's godly work involved. In the kingdom, there's godly work involved in heavenly places. These verbs that are used here, work and keep, are repeated one more time. And it's when God assigns the priest in the tabernacle. He puts the priest and he says, I'm going to place you into a tabernacle to work it and keep it. That is of importance to us because we now are the tabernacle and God's call has not changed He is still looking at us and he is saying, you are the tabernacle, you are the garden, I want you to work and keep it. What does that mean? You are soil, all of you are soil. That's that's actually what the Hebrew word Adam is, it's Adam, it means dirt. And so God purchased your ground on the cross 
And then when he filled you with his spirit, he is the seed of woman. He planted his spirit within your soil. And then he steps back and he says, now I want you to tend it. I want you to work at it and I want you to cultivate it. I want you to, I want you to water and I want you to expose that seed to the word of God. I want you to expose that seed to the spirit of God. I want it watered. I want it nurtured. And I'm asking you to prune it at times so that it produce fruit. Do you want to know the most taught heaven or hell scripture in the life and ministry of Jesus? It's fruit. That is the most, the thing that he talks most about being a heaven or hell issue is bearing fruit. To the tree that does not bear fruit, it will be cut down, tossed into the fire and burned. It is of absolute value. The will of God is that you and I be like Christ, that we produce fruit. That's our calling. There's an interesting thread of truth that appears in the book of Exodus. It's when God tells Moses in Exodus 6, verse 1, he says, because of my hand, Pharaoh will let the people go. Then in Exodus 7, verse 5, God tells him again, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. However, something unique takes place because in chapter 10, something unusual happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Then in chapter 14, he tells Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters. And we read this and it almost, we take a double look, at least I did, and I looked at, I went back and I, I flipped the pages and I went to Exodus 6 and I said, but God, you said because of your hand, Pharaoh's going to let the people go. And you said in Exodus 7, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. Why do you have Moses stretching out his is it your hand or his hand? Because we see the hand of Moses being used to execute the supernatural reality into this natural setting. All of the things that God said he would do with his mighty hand, we now see it happening through the hand of Moses. This causes us to wonder, is it God delivering Israel or is it Moses? The frustrating and yet simple answer is yes. It is God. Always will be. Always has been. No one will get credit. But for some reason, God wanted to partner with a human. Why else have us unless he wants to execute something through us? So we're, we're immediately given the revelation that, oh my God, you, you want me to partner with you in this whole thing. That's astonishing to me. And this shows even more grace that God is fully capable of doing all of this himself. Yet he takes a step back and he says, look, I know it's probably going to be a train wreck when I let my sons and daughters, like my little boy Ezra, clean out the garage and pour all the sawdust on the floor. But eventually they're going to get it. I, I look at my son and I'm, I'm not frustrated at him. I'm not like, come on, boy, can't you put trash, can't you put sawdust in the trash bag? I don't look at him. I look at him and I say, he's four. But he's going to be 10. And my 10-year-old son, if he keeps staying with daddy, is going to be the best sawdust sweeper in the world. If he spends some time with me, he's going to get good at this. So I'm willing to deal with a little bit of mess 
so that he can learn how to be really good at this whole thing. That's why I am I'm convinced that the church should be the safest place to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. This should be the best place for you to fail at something. And somebody come alongside you and say, okay, listen, that's not quite the way we do that. That's, but that's okay. That's okay. Let's, let me tell you what it, you're, you're right there. You're close to it. You almost hit the trash bag with the sawdust. But let's just pull the, the trash, let's just pull the dustbin a little bit closer to the side. This should be the safest place. But what happens is we don't step off into the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural, because we're so afraid we're going to blow it. I have news for you. You're going to. It's far better to humble yourself before you, before you step off into it. That's why when I feel a word of knowledge, I go up to people and I say, listen, when God spoke, it was a perfect 10. But when it hit my brain, it's probably going to come out of three. I'm just, I'm just letting you know now. So if something is amiss here, you have my permission to throw it all in the trash. Humble yourself first. And then say what you felt. And if it hits, glory to God, it wasn't your hand, but God wanted to partner with you. Okay? We, we see that it is always God. However, God chooses to execute his supernatural will into the natural realm through a natural man in a relationship with a supernatural God. Moses was not supernatural. The God he was enthralled with and walking with and learning from was. And the supernatural God was holding the hand of Moses when it was stretched forth. And when his hand went forth, it was not his hand. It was God holding hands with Moses. You get to hold hands with God Almighty. This is what I just keep feeling to talk about. He is partnering with humans. He wants an end-time harvest more than we want one. He wants you to operate in a dimension of the Spirit more than you want to. He wants you to bear fruit more than you do. So if he does, that means I know he's going to help me. And so there he is holding the hand of Moses right there on that shore. And sure enough, the waters open up because a natural man in relationship with a supernatural God brings the supernatural into the natural realm. The, these and many more, there are numerous instances all throughout the Bible, too many of which I can name in this setting. But the common denominator is simply this. God wants to partner with his creation in bringing the supernatural into the natural realm. Again, God wanted Israel to settle into the promised land, but to do so required the natural energy and efforts of Joshua and his fellow tribesmen. God could have just simply went through the promised land and cleared out the Amorites. With God's mighty nostrils, he could have just breathed according to the Psalms, and everybody within a shot of his breath would have fallen dead. God could have done all that, yet for some reason he looks at Joshua and he says nine times, be of good courage and do not fear. I want you to go forth and I want you to war. I want you to do some sweaty work. I want you to take a physical sword, and I want you to swing it. I, I'm, I want, I'm going to be with you, and every victory you have is going to be because of me, but I want you to actually pick up a sword and go into a battlefield. So to balance this thing out, the Father loves us. He's with us. His salvation stronger than you've heard, but it doesn't exempt us from any work. So lest we run to the other side of the seesaw and say, okay, man, I don't have to do a thing because I'm a child in the hands of the Father. The Father's going to do it all. Right now in our infancy, yes, but that's not his will. His will is that we mature. That's why he looked at the disciples and said, for a little while, I'm going to cast out all the devils. For a little while, I'm going to do all the preaching. For a little while, I'm going to do 
all of the miracles. But at some point, greater works are you going to do than these. I'm going to hand this over to you, but I need you to see how I do it. I need you to spend some time with me. I need you to watch and learn from me because I'm going to, I'm going to partner with you, and I'm going to put my spirit in you, and when you stretch forth your hands, Peter, it's going to be like my hands holding it. The grace of God is amazing, but it doesn't exempt us from any work. This is where I've seen other denominal movements. They have a greater revelation of grace than we do, I'll admit. We're getting there, but they don't have the revelation you and I have. We have the revelation of work. But we've gone overboard with it. We think God loves us because of our work. They know that God loves them, but they do no work. So what I've done is I've traveled and I've analyzed and I say, I would really like to be between both of those extremes. I would really love to have faith in the love of the Father and understand his mercy and grace. But I also can't let go of my upbringing that there is some work required of me. So let me do my due diligence in studying to see if that's even a biblical reality. And I find it time and time again that God could have done the easy thing, but yet he hands the reins over to a human and says, here, do some work. This is, this is the balance of the seesaw. Lest we tilt too far to one side or the other, I want us to be right in the middle where Christ is, where people don't know what to do with you. Are they, a little, are they a little conservative or a little liberal? Neither. That's why I love the passage where the man of God runs up to an angel and says, are you with us or for them? And the angel says, neither. I am for God. I don't, I'm not picking sides. I'm right with him in the center. I want to be like Christ. However, somewhere in the past 50 years or so, even though this is a reality of Scripture, God giving Joshua victory, Moses stretching forth his arm, Jesus, God Almighty, partnering with humans. I've noticed, and it's probably been longer. Some of you elders can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems, as from, from what I can research, it seems that in the past 50 years or so, there has been an, a strange uptick of weird theology that has refuted this biblical pattern of God partnering with human efforts. And it has come with the banner that is waved. We are saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. And it's a distortion of such a beautiful scripture. That is scripture. We're saved by grace, not by works. We cannot boast. But that scripture was never exempting us from work. It was just simply telling us we weren't saved by works. I used the illustration last night. You didn't choose to be born. You couldn't earn birth. You were just born through love. It was literal love between a male and a female that birthed you. The product of love brings about the baby. It was grace, and you did nothing to earn it. But now that you're a child, work is part of being a human. The parents that conceived you in love don't look at you and say, well, because we loved you and conceived you, you never have to do a thing. If that were the, if that were the case, that is, that's, to me, that's abuse. Telling a child that you don't have to do anything is abuse, clothed in grace. I just love them so much. I want them to have a better life than I've had. Then teach them how to work. Because someday they're not going to live with you and they're not going to have a clue what to do. So to balance that out. This is the scripture that I've seen used on the banner of this theology. And it is, it is not just in the non-denominal movements and other denominations. It has crept into the apostolic church as well. 
Because what I've, what I've analyzed, Brother Williams, is I've seen that people are tired of walking the tightrope. And so they've overcorrected, and they said, God, it just feels so much more peaceful. As you have felt, do you feel more peace that, man, my salvation is secure? But they've run to the other side, and they've overcorrected, and they said, oh, it feels so good over here. And they don't do anything now. And we see all of our convictions are tossed out the window as we overcorrect to the other side of the highway. Here's what some of the sayings are that I've heard. God will fight my battles. Just let go and let God. Faith it till you make it. Or my favorite, Jesus, take the will. These are the taglines and statements that I've heard that foster this idea of excuse from any kind of kingdom effort. Even though the Bible has exhortations such as resist temptation, die to sin, deny yourself, fight the good fight, strive for godliness. The word strive is the Greek word agonizimi, which is where we get our English word agonize. In fact, Jesus said to strive for the straight gate. The word straight means minimal margins. Minimal margins means there's not a lot of room on this road. The no room is part of its security. I want to illustrate it again. I just can't get away from the narrow corridor. It is safe. It is secure. Imagine you have these walls, though, and you start pulling the walls in with Scripture. And Scripture says, take those walls that are way out there, pull them in. When you pull them in real tight, you don't fall. Do you see? You don't lean. It's even more secure. You can't build the foundation that was graciously given to you. God paved the road. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But then the text says, if you love me, go grab some commandments. And pull them. And it'll keep you safer. That is, that is the call of all of us to balance us out. We are partnering with him. We're stretching forth our hand. We're not just looking at him and saying perpetual babies drinking milk. We're saying, God, I want to grow up into the full image of Jesus. The word for narrow, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Narrow is pressure. Because I have found that the, the convictions that I walk in comes with critique. And I, I've made it a point, I don't publicize my convictions. I have a very intimate relationship with my convictions. It's a very, very personal thing for me because I believe that when I had a conviction, I don't believe I came up with it. I believe that the Spirit is the one who gave it to me because he said, I want to draw you closer. I want you real close to me. And so it is my intimacy with him. And that's why I'm not, gonna, I'm not up here talking to you about my bedroom time with my wife because my convictions are my intimacy with him. I don't have to tell you all of them. I will tell you I am more convicted of things today at this stage of my walk with God than I ever have been. And I am more in love with the Father and his grace than I ever have been. I want to get in such a place where people don't know what to do with me. Are you a little, are you a little liberal or are you a little conservative? I can't tell exactly. I have many convictions. I have more now than I've ever had. 
but I have more certainty in his love. And I know that my convictions do not determine his love for me. I am striving, I'm agonizing for godliness. And I, I, have, I have been told, I've had people tell me, you just need to lighten up, bro. To them, I don't get into an argument. I smile and I say, it seems as though we can't walk together. It seems as though we're on two different roads. That is pressure. Because I've had to say that to men that I love. I had a pastor that was going in a completely different direction than I felt was biblical. Not a different direction than me. A different direction than was biblical. I've preached for him time and time again. I have been at conferences where he spoke, and I began to analyze the direction he was going in. And he asked me to come and hold a certain office in his church, and I said, I can't. We're, we're not headed the same direction. I love you, but we're just, we're interpreting the scriptures very differently now. And that was hard. That was very hard. And it came across, well, you're being a little self-righteous, aren't you? I don't believe it's self. I believe that the righteous shall live by faith. And I believe, the word faith is believe, I believe something different than you. That is pressure. What I've discerned is that many are leaning towards this pattern of twisted theology because they feel that they want to protect grace. Jesus, take the will, just let go, let God, faith it till you make it, all those things. I don't believe it comes from a, an ill place. I, I, I've discerned it in some situations where it's coming from a place of I'm just tired, I just, I'm ready to let go of all that stuff. But I have discerned most often that it is people really trying to protect grace. It's their way of, I, I, I just want to preserve grace. And I feel like if I, if I preach on these things over here, then it's, it's distorting grace. Because we're saved by grace, not by works. It's, it's a way for them to protect grace, which is freely given. And we want to make people feel welcome. This has been what I've heard. We, we just want the guests to feel welcome, so we don't want to talk about these things because, you know, we're going to run the guests off. And I, I told them, I said, we were never supposed to make, we're supposed to be friendly, but we're not supposed to make sinners feel welcome. We're supposed to make the presence of God feel welcome. And when the father comes in, he makes his estranged daughters and sons feel welcome. Now, that's not an excuse for you to be unfriendly. But there's a difference of being loving and kind to a guest and focusing all your attention. Because if we focus all our attention on making them feel welcome, it does hinder your worship. Because you're embarrassed of what they might think of you. I'll, I'll just let you know, the world is desperately looking for weird. They are. Hollywood's proving this to you. I had, a, I had a pastor tell me this recently. He said, I just, he said, I, I'm, not, I'm not preaching on, on things anymore. And I just, I looked at him, I said, well, how come, brother? He said, I just, he said, I don't feel like people want those disciplines anymore. And I looked at him, I said, CrossFit betrays that train of thought. CrossFit is one of the fastest growing workout programs out there where you literally, brutally mutilate your body for muscle growth. And they are paying people to do this to them. I said, people want discipline that leads to change. The world's proving this to us. 
It, but it's coming from a place of, I want to protect grace. We have misunderstood the powerful difference between justification and sanctification. You see, all of us came before God filled to overflowing with sin. But by his great love, his amazing grace, Christ died for us. And his precious, spotless, blameless, sinless blood began to wash sinners clean. They were removed by the washing of water, which Paul said is his burial. We were baptized and every sin was cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And by intimacy with the groom and his bride, the church, a baby is born by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. All of this took place and you didn't do anything to deserve it. That is justification. That's justification. There is no work in that. Your only job is to come in and to say, I don't want to live the way I'm living. And God does all the work. It was, it was man who hung Jesus on the cross. But it is God who resurrected. Man didn't do that part. Man's part is just come and die. To those who are bid come and die, and they have to first come and die. We did nothing in this process Beautiful justification. We are justified before God by no doing of our own. This is amazing grace. This is the death, the burial, the resurrection of the disciple that follows the glorious pattern of the resurrected Savior. But this is justification. And this process of justification that you didn't earn, it was graciously given, leads us to the supernatural life of Jesus who became a natural man to show us how natural men can execute the supernatural into this realm if we're in relationship with the Father. The death, burial, and resurrection gives us access to the life of Jesus. I had a, I had a vision last year Brother Dustin, and in this vision, I could see clearly this beautiful door. It was ornate. It was just this, I don't know what kind of wood it was. It was just beautiful wood, and it was ornate. It had been chiseled and had all kind of patterns and designs in it. And I saw people were coming from all over to look at this door. It was like tourism. And they were looking at the door, and they were talking about how beautiful the door was. And they were having debates on what type of wood it was and what year it was constructed and how, how the artist made, what was on the artist's mind when they were carving out the stuff. And for me in the vision, I was really curious. I said, the door is absolutely stunning. It is. And I looked at it, and I analyzed it. But then I got a curiosity in my spirit in this vision. I said, I want to know what's beyond the door. And so I opened up the door, and I walked in. And when I, my foot hit the threshold, I saw this beautiful, lush, green garden. And it was the kingdom. And I could see it went as far as the eye could see. And I was just filled with awe and wonder. And I, I fell even more in love with the door because I said, that door gave me access to all this. Look at all that's out here. And the voice of God spoke. He said, I have so many people that just spend time looking at the door, the way, the truth, the life. He said, they look at my salvation. They analyze my salvation. They have debated my salvation. They try to determine who's right and who's wrong, and they just argue about my salvation. And he said, not many go beyond into the door and just live the way I lived in the kingdom. When you go into the kingdom and you see what's all available to his disciples, it makes you, you don't, you're not forsaking the door. 
you fall even more in love with it because the further you go into the kingdom and you see the peace that's in his kingdom, you see the joy that's in his kingdom, the love that's growing in his kingdom, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. When you see all of that and you feel it, it makes you fall even deeper in love with that door because you would have never gotten any of that without that door. But that's why I believe Paul said, let us not lay again the foundations, or whoever wrote Hebrews, let us not lay again the foundations of repentance and the laying on of hands, but let us go on. We have lived for so long in Acts 2. Beautiful door. The most profound door in the whole Bible. The hallway through which the Old Testament passed into the New Covenant. I love Acts 2. I will never leave Acts 2. And I preach every Sunday Acts 2. When in doubt, preach the gospel is my, my little saying. I love preaching the gospel. But I have seen an amazing kingdom that's been available to me because of it. And he put me in the kingdom to work. The day-to-day grind, the work, the sweat, and the effort of living in this kingdom, that's sanctification. Now that we're in the kingdom, it's time to grow up in the kingdom, to leave the elementary principles and to get off the milk and to go further into this kingdom and say, oh, because of that great grace, because of that amazing door, because of his death, and preach it. Tell people, go from the kingdom back out to them and say, let me tell you what's beyond this door. You got to go through the door to get there, though. Go, please, go through the door. Please die to sin. Be buried the way he was in baptism. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. And come with me into the kingdom and let, feel this peace. Feel this joy. Sanctification. It's the work that takes place after you've been justified. As you strive to become more and more like the one who justified you. To those to whom he justified, he sanctified and he glorified. I believe prophetically that the apostolic church is in alignment to go to the glory realms. In the coming months, I believe it will happen. But to get there, you have to go from justification through sanctification to glorification. You don't get to glory without what's in between. Sanctification. Just like justification, it is initiated and empowered by God, but it does come with human effort. It requires you to stretch forth your hand. God said, stretch forth your hand. Salvation is surrender. Sanctification is war. By eliminating sanctification, here's what you do. You create a cheap grace which embraces Christ's message but refuses the hard work that comes with following him. There's this passage in the Bible that has, I was in a, I was in a class and we spent the whole semester talking about this one passage in Mark. And it's about the man who was sitting at the pool of Bethsaida. 
Now, culturally, that was a pagan pool as far as theologians can tell. I know we've preached it, the angel stirred the water, but the word angel can both mean an, an evil spirit as well as a good spirit. And so it's just angels. When you see the word angel, it's not always talking about a good one, by the way, in the Bible. And so the angel stirring it, this was a, a Roman pool that they believed that if you go into these healing waters, you'll be healed. If it was a godly one, why didn't Jesus put him in it? If it was a, a God sanctioned, did God look at his holy angels that he hired and, and empowered to stir the waters? Why did God look at them and say, hey, guys, you're fired today. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm, I got this now. Why would God do that? That's, that's, a, that's a changing God. He's an unchanging one. So Jesus comes along and he sees a man there. What we, we, what we can tell is if this is a pagan pool, this Jewish boy sitting here, has tried everything, and he's thinking to himself, Yahweh has failed me. I'm going to try something else now. God hasn't come through. Let me go and dabble in other religions and see if there's an answer out there. And so Jesus goes to him on Sabbath, which is against the law. Jesus is supposed to be at the synagogue. And he takes a detour while he's on his way to synagogue. Okay? And so people try to use these types of scriptures that are on the other side of the seesaw, and they try to say that Jesus is completely ignoring the law altogether because, look, he's doing this on Sabbath. We'll read the rest of Mark. Later that afternoon, he's back in the synagogue. But right now, he says, there's a person damaged. On my way to synagogue, let me help them and go back to the law, the commandments. So on his way, he stops, and he sees a man there, and he says, do you want to be healed? He says, yes, but I have no one to put me in the pool. He's like, oh, don't worry about that. I got this. He says, take up your bed and walk takes up his bed and walks. He says, go show the Pharisees. He runs with his bed, which is illegal. You can't carry a bed on Sabbath. You can do no work on Sabbath. So he's carrying his bed, and he goes to the Pharisees. He goes, guys, I was healed today. And they look at him, and they don't even, they're not even amazed. They couldn't care less. They're just like, who healed you? We need to go have a talk with him because you don't do healings on Sabbath. That's work. And why are you carrying a bed on Sabbath? And this is what he says. Oh, I don't know who healed me. He's protecting the identity of Jesus because he knows if I tell the Pharisees it was him, they're going to go arrest him for doing work on Sabbath. He's protecting grace. But later that afternoon, he goes to the synagogue. And now grace has become stern. And he looks at him and he says, go and get the sin out of your life, lest something worse come upon you. That's the balance Jesus. Grace met him and it was amazing. But then grace looked at him and he said, go do some work. Get the sin out of your life. Let something worse come upon you. The very next verse, the young man goes and tells the Pharisees, hey, Jesus healed me. He turned him in. Do you know what that tells me? I want to walk, just not with Jesus. I want to be saved. I just don't want to do any work. I want to be justified. I just don't want any sanctification. This is cheap grace. By eliminating the sanctification process, these are the words of Jesus. Go and get the sin out of your life, lest something worse come upon you. That's a hard word, and it don't feel gracious, does it? But it is. It's even more gracious because he's saying, go beyond the door. I got a whole world out there for you, but you can't walk in it like this. Go do some work. When we embrace Christ's message but refuse the hard work of following him, we create cheap grace. By striving for holy, 
we honor the gift of grace. When I strive for sanctification and I say, I just, I don't, I want to do some things, but I'm not going to because I want to honor that grace that was given to me. I don't want to dishonor this amazing grace that's been allotted to me. He died for me so that I can live. And now that I'm living, there's things that I still want to do, but I don't want to let myself do it because it's leading me away from him. Conviction then happens. We cannot arrogantly think that we can pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, though. When we do that, we become Pharisees. When we think that, okay, I, I, this is, again, overcorrecting, and this is the balance, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna teeter until you can find your balance and then keep it where neither side of the seesaw is touching two extremes. But it's going to take a minute. It is. You're going to want to lean over here towards your works, but then you're going to want to lean over here towards freedom, and you're just going to have to find that perfect balance of the Father He's gracious and kind. He's loving. He's given me time to figure out how to put the sawdust in the trash bag. But at the same time, I want to grow up and know how to sweep the whole garage. But when we blow it, we go and say, to make him happy, let me just go do it without him even asking. Let me sweep the whole garage. And he's going to look at you and say, well, good job. But I, I, I did love you before you swept it. In fact, didn't you know I loved you when you were a sinner? How much more so as a son? Thank you for sweeping the garage, but that doesn't put you in my good graces anymore. What makes me really love you is you just obey my commands. That's what I'm looking for. I really want you to be like me. That's what pleases me. If we think we can pull our soul up by our spiritual bootstraps, we become Pharisees. It's an empowerment from the Spirit that prompts us to do something. When when I come across something and I feel just icky, that's the Holy Ghost saying, hey, nah, don't do that anymore. A conviction has hit me. And now I have to do the work and the practice of restraining, staying away from. But what, this is, this, this is a, we're, we're funny as humans. We really are. I was talking to somebody uh, last Sunday. This young man, he said, I feel I need to get up early every morning. He said, I just, I feel like I want to make this a habit in my life. And he said, I noticed the funniest thing about me. When I started getting up early every morning, I would look at people who didn't get up early and I'd be like, lazy. We do this, don't we? When I got off of social media altogether, I started looking at everybody and like, carnal. It's consuming trash. Look at y'all. We have a God complex that we have to cast down that imagination and every high thing that would exalt itself above the knowledge of Christ Jesus. I have to be careful that the things that are, the convictions that God gives me and I respond to doesn't make me better than my brother. It just keeps me where I am. God, you're looking at me, you're not comparing me. It's, it's not wise to compare ourselves amongst ourselves, your word says, so I'm just going to stay right here and obedient to you. I just want to be obedient to you. Whatever you ask of me, I want to do it. And just don't look at yourself as either better or less than anybody else. Just be obedient to him. God knows where we all are in our walk with him, and he's patient towards us, but we have this God complex that we have to cast down and just say, God, what do you want from me? If you don't ask it of them, then it's between them and you. If you don't, if, 
Brother Stone King said this. He looked at some, some pastors one day, and he said, God, how come you've asked me to do certain things, but you haven't asked them to do it? And God looked at him and he said, because I asked you, not them. Some people God has asked to stay single all their lives. Is that the will of God for you? Is that what God wants for you? Go ask him. If he convicts you, obey it. But don't think you're some spiritual guru and you're better and you're going to have greater revelation than the person who's married. Now, obviously, there are things that we all should be doing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those intimate things God asks specifically of you. It is an empowerment from the Spirit that prompts us to do something because God is calling us closer to himself. But the Spirit does not possess you to do it. I had a guy walk into the office in Lafayette when I was working at that church. A guy walked in, just some random guy, wasn't in the church. He just came, and he, he told me that he was dealing with pornography and struggling with lust, and he was struggling with gambling and drinking, all kind of things. He just kind of let it all out. And he looked at me, and he said, he said, I want you to lay hands on me. I said, okay. In my head, I'm thinking of casting out devils. <laughs> and he said, I want you to pray for me that I'll stop doing these things. And I said, oh, bro. <laughs> I said, if I could do that, I'd lay hands on everybody. I said, I'm going to upset your whole day. He got mad at me. This is, the, this is the pressure. I said, that's on you. You're going to have to take that computer, if that's a struggle for you, and throw it in the trash. You're going to have to get rid of a cell phone and get a dumb phone. You're going to have to do all these things to, you're going to have to pull the walls in real tight so you don't fall either to the side. You're going to have to learn how to, it's not God control, it's self-control. God's not going to possess you, he's going to convict you. And he wants the one convicted to possess your faculties and do this work. Because he placed you in the kingdom to work it and keep it. And he says, if you work this soil, it will produce fruit. But I'm not going to do it for you. I'm just going to be the father standing over your shoulder saying, hey, you need, to, you, you need to probably prune that away a little bit right there. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I'm pretty good at this whole garden thing. I've done it before. I need you to kind of just prune that. And you're just like, I got this. I can keep that here and produce. And God's like, I'll let you fail and see. You'll be a little wiser. And he looked at me and said, you're really not going to lay hands on me and make me to where I can't stop looking at porn. I said, I don't have the power to do that. You need to get so full of the Holy Ghost and get so in love with him and let him convict you that you don't ever want to go back to it because his grace is so amazing. And you, want, you should want to obey his commands because he's been good to you, not because you're scared to death of him. That's a good motivator at times. That's, probably, that's where we all start is scared to death. But then we move on. It's kind of like Esther. She was scared to death to approach the king. And then when she approached him and saw how great he was, she was just like, oh, my goodness, he's better than I thought. But my approach was through fear. But now my relationship's provoked by love. He stormed out of the office, and I began to realize this is really what people think. The sanctification is possession. The Spirit waits on us to comply to the prompting. When we discount our role in sanctification, then it leads to license, though. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to put the two phrases together. When we feel like we can do this all ourselves, we become Pharisees. But when we feel like we don't have to do anything it creates a license. I can do whatever I want to because the Father's going to keep forgiving me. 
By ignoring God's role in sanctification, it leads to legalism. Do you see how the seesaw becomes this, if I just tilt an ounce of my weight, it's going to hit over here. It's work. It takes a tremendous amount of work to keep the thing perfectly balanced. And do you know what balances it? Scripture. Reading the Bible. The Scripture keeps you from leaning too far to either side. And before you know it, your equilibrium is solid. And you can throw a stone at me. It's not going to tilt. Why? Because Scripture has trained my hands for battle. Scripture will balance this thing out. I don't want to ignore God's role in the sanctification process because I'll become a legalist. But I don't want to discount my role in sanctification either because that'll lead to license. There's a beautiful balance between the two. Grace, hear this very closely. If you have a pen, please write this down. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not upset with you if you put forth some effort. Grace becomes frustrated with you when you think you've earned something because of the effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace loves effort. Grace doesn't like that you feel you earned something, though. I believe that it, it pleases God. The same way it pleased me when my little boy came into the garage and he said, Hey, Daddy, I want to help you sweep. That was his words to me. I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a sermon in that moment. The only thing that overcame my mind was, man, we're doing it. My little boy wants to spend time with me. And I was as happy as you can imagine. And I was so proud that he was in there sweeping with me. And, and I knew in my head, it's not going to be to my standard. But I don't care. He's here. He wants to be in the garage with his daddy. I'm doing it. I'm showing him that work is fun when it's with the daddy. There was no sermon in this moment. I wasn't trying to think, oh, that'll preach. I just wanted to be with my boy. And when he dumped all the sawdust onto the floor, I knew if we keep doing this, though, that effort that he put forth by his desire to be with his father is going to turn into a hard little worker. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to be just like me when I sweep this garage because he watched the father. I will be frustrated with him, though, if he thinks that him being in the garage will earn him something from me. It will then turn my joy into frustration. Because imagine my disappointment I thought you just wanted to be with me. I didn't know that you only were doing this to get something out of me. To balance my kids out before you think they're perfect angels. I came home from a revival and my kids ran out and they're used to getting gift baskets at churches. And so I understand their question, but they ran into the house when I walked in and they said, hey, daddy, before anything, they said, what did you bring me? I was immediately grieved. And I was hurt because my presence wasn't enough. 
me being home was not satisfactory. They wanted me to have something in my hand when I came there. This is why, I know it's scripture, but this is why I don't incentivize giving. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That, by the way, is talking about mercy in the New Testament. That's not talking about money. He says, give grace or give mercy and it'll be given back to you. But I don't like to incentivize giving because now my motivation for giving is to get something. I just want to give. If I get something, glory to God, and I, I probably will, but that's not why I did it. I give because freely was given to me. I'm blessed, so let me be a blessing. Whatever he returns, that's great. But that's not why I did it. I don't want to grieve him by thinking, I'm just here and I'm just sweeping because I know you'll give me a good allowance. I was so pleased that my son was ignorant to all the things of this life. We, we don't do an allowance in our house, so it wasn't from an impure motive. He just wanted to be with daddy. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds, hear that, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, 2 Peter 1 3 through 9. His divine power has given to us all things. Notice, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust, but also for this very reason, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. You see though the balance, his divine power has given to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. But for this very reason, add to your faith, virtue. To virtue, knowledge. How do you add knowledge? You have to do some work to sit down and study. He doesn't just drop it in your head. God leads me in a direction, and God has multiple times led me in a direction and then stopped. And I said, well, God, where's the rest of the direction? He said, go study it. I want you to go study it because... Why do you think, so I, I love it when people do this. They say that Jesus teaches in parables so that people will understand. That's quite literally the opposite of what he was doing. He was teaching in parables and they were even more confused. Why is Jesus teaching in parables then? Because he knows the person who heard the indirect word will go and meditate on what he said and when you meditate, you'll get the revelation. He's literally leaving them with work. He could have told the Pharisees, hey, I don't want these tables here in, this, in the temple anymore. But he doesn't. He looks at them, he says, go and search what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He literally told the Pharisees, you have scrolls, go read them. I'm not just gonna tell you. You see, 
This is a lot of work, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced there will be no lazy people in heaven. Listen to the end of 2 Peter 1. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from old sins. He's quite literally saying, if you don't work at adding faith to your virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly love and to brotherly love or brotherly kindness love, if you don't add these things to you, you're short-sighted and you forgot that you've even been saved. You're now doing this for benefits. You've cheapened his grace. Colossians 1.29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. It's a, it's a weird passage because it's literally saying, I labor and I strive in accordance to the work that's in me. And so you're literally reading Colossians 1.29. It's like, well, is it you, Paul, or is it God? Yes. It's God stretching forth your hand and you stretching forth yours with him and holding his hand. His grace saved you, but his grace isn't going to do all the work of sanctification. That's our job. Our job is sanctification, but it's also his job to convict us. Perfect illustration, and it'll be the last one I use because I feel like I've belabored the point. But if you are in a boat and you're steering the boat, God said, I want you steering the boat and I want you to pull the sails down and I want you to set the stern, but the wind's what's driving this thing. I want you to partner with sanctification, but my spirit's what's driving it, but I need you to pull the stern down, and I need you to go in the direction I'm convicting you to go in. It's partly you and partly me. God isn't going to make me get up early and seek his face. God isn't going to manage my cell phone for me. God isn't going to take control of me to share the gospel. God isn't going to make me sit and read and study his word. God isn't going to make me bless those who persecute me. God isn't going to make me come to church. God isn't going to make me stop gossiping. God is not going to make me dance in, in the service. All of that is your part. Sanctification. Sanctification. His spirit which you have by justification will lead and guide, but you have to put in the effort. It's that perfect harmony. You notice I've used the word sanctification tonight because I can't use the word holy with the apostolic church anymore. Because when I say holy, your brain goes off on a list of things. So I've had to start using the word sanctify to start fresh because they both mean the same thing. But the moment I say holy, you immediately go to length, one-eyed devils. All of those things God will convict you of. He'll convict you. Read, study the Bible, they're in there, and then go do some work. When you do that, you're becoming like Christ. You're touching nothing impure. You're working. Matthew eleven twelve through 15 is where I want to close on this, and I'll read from 1 Samuel. It says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus talks about a violent man. And he says, 
This man was not just laying around doing nothing. He, he had something within him that was violent and just said, I don't want to live like everybody else. I don't, I want to obey and I want to fall in love with him. I want that love. I want that grace. But I just, I also don't want to get close to the world. I don't want to do everything the world is doing. But I don't want to think that my, my distance from the world is making me anything special. I want to take the tape measure. Instead of seeing how far I can get from the world, I want to turn it around and I want my tape measure to see how close I can get to God. I want to balance this thing out. But to get close to God, there's some things I got to let go of because it is a narrow corridor. It's firm. It's fast. It's not a tightrope. Our tightrope has been, we're juggling all of our standards. And we're over here like, hey, look at me. Come and look at the show. Y'all, look how balanced I am at juggling all this stuff. But when you fall, the whole way down, you're like, oh God, this is it. I messed up. I dropped a standard. Now I'm falling to my death. God, are you going to help me while I'm skydiving through the earth and keep me from splattering on the ground? And he's like, It'd be far better if you realized how firm my salvation is under your feet and pull those walls in real tight so you don't fall at all. This isn't a tightrope. This is a narrow walk. Be violent. Be violent. There should be some things that you ride around in the kingdom of your internal minds and go through and say, whoa, that's, a, that's an idol. That right there, that, that's exalting itself above the knowledge of Christ Jesus. That needs to be cast down. I need to go and ride through my life and see and be like, oh, man, that's a false theology. Oh, that's really prideful. Oh, that's really arrogant. Let me get rid of that. Oh, that's really carnal. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I felt icky when I looked at that. It's not saving you. It's securing and not, it's, it's keeping your grace from getting cheap and it's making grace more extravagant when you stay disciplined and you're sanctified. But if you somehow drop a, one of those convictions, you're not plummeting to your death. Pick it back up and put the brick back in the wall. And say, okay, let's go at this again. Because you're growing up, you're learning how to put the sawdust in the bag. It's not, that's it, you dropped it, you dropped the ball, you're done with. You knew better. Watch this, 1 Samuel 15, 8 through 9. It says, he also took Agog, king of the Amalekites. Agog, and I'll give you some context here. This is Saul. This is Saul's downward spiral. This is where it begins. This is ground zero of where Saul loses the kingdom. God told him, I want you to go and I want you to kill King Agog, the king of the Amalekites, and utterly destroy everything in his kingdom. I want you to annihilate it all. I want you to be violent. I'm not going to do it, Saul. I want you to go do it. It's funny that Saul is head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and King Agog, the word Agog means high thing. He left the high thing alive. And so there's King Agog. And here's the context. It says, he also took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive, but he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. And so he somehow thinks, boy, I did good. I did 95% of what God said. 95%. He said, kill everything. King Agog and everything, all the Amalekites. I killed everything, but Agog, the high, the high man, I'm going to leave him alive. Surely he'll be pleased with 95%. God called him to be violent. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. You see, that we have a problem that we go through and we, we negotiate with ourselves. Be like, well, this isn't that bad. 
that's not that bad. I'm so hesitant to just... PG-13 is not that bad. It's old enough for a 13-year-old. That's the, one, that's the only one I'll do. I'll let, I'll let the pastors hear less the rest. He kept all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that's what they utterly destroyed. That which added value to them was spared. But then Samuel shows up. You need a prophet in your life. In your internal mind, you need the prophet Jesus. And if you don't listen to the prophet Jesus, he'll send another prophet to call it out. It's, it's far better to just throw yourself on the stone and just listen to the prophet Jesus. But if you ignore him, he'll send one to come after him, and that prophet stands as testimony against you. And so someday when you stand before the judgment seat, you're going to be like, nobody told me. He's going to say, huh, I told you. You didn't listen. Then I sent a prophet. So Samuel said, he, he, he shows up, and Samuel looks at him, or Saul looks at Samuel and says, I did everything the Lord asked. And Samuel says, well, what then is the sound of bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? Why are the sheep alive? He said to utterly destroy everything. You didn't stretch forth your hand. I, I don't understand what the issue is here. Well, what do you mean you did everything that he asked? And you know what the prophet did? He pulled out a sword, and the prophet chopped up King Agog. And the prophet had to do what Saul should have done. I, I believe in a beautiful church in the future where we don't even have to do these things, that people are just convicted and they're obedient to their convictions and we just start living a convicted life and a balanced life of godliness and love. But we're also, we don't need an entire dissertation of teaching on certain things because we have read our Bibles ourselves and we have seen, this just don't feel right, this isn't good. And we just get to a place where we're all growing and maturing and discipling and, and doing all those things. And we're perfectly, we're balanced on the seesaw. And there's a place for teaching, there's a place for all of that. And that's what's happening right now. But it is God's will that you also study your Bibles and see, man, there's just some things I don't need to be doing. There's some places I'm not going to go. There's some words I'm just not going to say. There's, a, there's an attitude I'm not going to have. And allow a Samuel to come into your kingdom and to walk through your mind and through your lifestyle and through your workplace and through your home and let him walk with a sword as a violent man and to start chopping things up that just shouldn't be in the life of any Christian because it's robbing you of peace. It's robbing you of joy. It's robbing you of that hope of eternal salvation. It's robbing you of all those things. And after it's done, you just say, that was hurt. That hurt me. But boy, I feel so much better because I'm running through the kingdom now and nothing's stopping me. I am more secure by the things that I've pulled near to myself. I will leave you with this. I want you to stand. Last year, I was, I was I preached a camp in Texas. By the grace of God, I preached three youth camps last year, and, I, I, and I'm, just, I'm saying that just there's for a reason. I don't ever tell people what I preach. I just, this is for a reason. And I, I preached these three youth camps, and I was scrolling through social media, and you know how they do. They, they make these little video clips of the preacher. And I stopped, and I saw multiple videos of me preaching. 
And I stopped and I watched one of them. And just be honest. And I saw that and I was like, well, they did a good job with those edits. I felt the goosebumps by what I said. Had 30,000 views in the matter of a couple days. And I was like, boy, people like this. Immediately conviction hit me. I am going to get caught up in my own press release. And that will rob me from the places God has called me to walk into in this kingdom. And so I pulled my sword out, scrolled through the settings, and found delete account. And here's what I found out during this season. The devil does not, or the adversary does not want you pulling the sword out. He will fight back. 30 days it takes to eliminate a social media account. And if you log in one time, it starts the timer all over again. If you log in on day 29, it starts it over another 30 days. For 30 days, I had to have self-control not to log back in. And there were days where I was curious. There were days where I justified it. And I said, well, I need to know the address of the church I'm preaching at. And they posted it on social media. I need to know the time of service. And it's hard to find the website. So it's just easier to go to the Instagram page or the Facebook page. And I kept justifying it. I just kept saying, no, no, no. I'm going to get caught up in my own press release. I'm going to fight with pride. I'm going to deal with issues. I've got to kill this thing. When social media was deleted, I felt no more loved than I did before. I felt secure, though. I felt secure. My conviction doesn't make him love me more. My conviction tells him how much I love him back. There it is. I wanted to end on that statement. When you obey a conviction, you're saying, I'm serious about this thing, God. I'm committed to this relationship. I have eyes for no one else but you, my groom. I'm not looking to, listening to, thinking about anybody else but you. My mind is fixed on the lover of my soul. You love me so much you died for me. I love you so much I'll live for you, and I will be committed to you. I would that somebody right now, I can feel it in my spirit. There's been some convictions that's overcome some people right now. And right now, I feel the same spirit I felt last night. I want you to thrust those hands up in the air and say, God, this is how much I love you back. I'm going to make some commitments right now, and I'm going to start moving forward past the door into the kingdom. I love that door, but I love the, the kingdom that it gave me access to. Would you commit yourself? God, I'm going to study a little bit more than I've been studying. I don't believe that you're going to love me more for it, but I'm going to show you how much I love you back through my convictions. Let's balance the seesaw out. Let's pull from that avenue of grace and say, okay, God, grace was your job obeying conviction is mine and I'm going to stretch forth my hand would you stretch forth your hand right now with a sword would you cast down those imaginations that have built themselves up in your mind would you begin to kill some things right now would you begin the process of sanctification and some of you have already been on the road of sanctification would you walk in it some more I believe that God is getting he's getting the flutters in his heart right now and he's looking at the angels of heaven he says they love me brother Williams they love me they're obeying their conviction convictions. They want to run after me. They're going to stop doing some things. I've always loved them, but now I'm seeing how much they love me back. I'm going to obey and I'm going to love you, Father. I'm going to come after you with everything I've got because you've been so good to me. Would you come to these altars right now? No music. And would you just make a commitment to God? I want this to be an altar of commitment.
I know we've been here for a minute, but I want you to make a commitment unto God right here in this setting. God, I want to be balanced. I'm going to do some things, and I'm going to run after some things, and I'm going to put forth some effort. But God, I don't believe you're going to love me anymore for it. But I sure get the opportunity to show you how amazing you are to me and how serious I am about this relationship. I'm showing you, God, that I'm not strong. I'll fall every single time unless I've got some things in my life that prop me up. So God, here it is right now. Convict me. Ask him to convict you. It's his good pleasure to say, no, I don't want you doing that, honey. No, I don't want you doing that, son. I don't think that's a good idea. No, not for you. Maybe for somebody else, but for you it'll be a problem. Let him talk to you. Let him speak to you. Ministers, let him convict you of your Bible study. Let him convict you of your prayer time. He's not condemning you. He's convicting you. There's a difference. That's the balance. The devil condemns you for not doing enough. The Lord convicts you for not doing enough. It's different. It's from a different motivation. It's God drawing you near. Condemnation draws you away. Right now, obey that beautiful, loving conviction that he gives us. It says, come a little closer to me. Come a little closer. That's it. I want you to come even closer to me. And right now, would you just know that God, because you've convicted me, you must really care about me. You must really love me. And now I want you to, right now, I want all of you, I want you to see that vast kingdom out in front of you. Here's what I will prophesy to this amazing church. Apostolic Worship Center, this is what I feel in my spirit. I believe that there are many right now walking into a kingdom and I will say the words that Jesus said to his disciples to you greater works shall you do than these I believe you're going to perform miracles and I believe it's going to be the hand of God grabbing the hand of a human I believe that God is going to allow you to see some things part I believe that God is going to give you supernatural visions I believe that God is going to put prophecies within you I believe that God is going to begin to partner with his mature children who are growing up and learning and striving for him, God's going to begin operating through you. If you want that, I want you to thrust those hands up into the air and say, God, here's my hands. I'm stretching them forth. Would you grab it? And God, would you allow me to bring the natural into, or the supernatural into this natural realm? Because I'm holding hands with a supernatural God. That's the beauty right there of partnering with God. He wants us to operate in a supernatural dimension. Would somebody stretch your faith a little bit? Would you allow God to begin provoking the gifts that are within you? Because there's an orchard of fruit that's growing right now in this room. Come on, God's going to give some of you visions. He's going to give you prophetic dreams. He's going to give you words of knowledge. He's going to give you the discerning of spirits. He's going to give you faith. He's going to give you miracles. He's going to give you healings. He's going to give to you wisdom. He's going to give you those gifts of the Spirit because you're mature enough to handle them because of the fruit of the Spirit through your convictions. It's cultivating within you. You're working and keeping this beautiful sacred garden where you can meet with Him face to face.
Come on, that's it. Somebody pull the supernatural into this natural realm. Do it right now. I believe God's going to begin honoring his people. God's going to partner with his people right now. Would somebody just begin to stir up those gifts that are within you? I can feel them in this place. I feel the gifts of the Spirit presenting themselves and making themselves available in this room. It's happening because God's people are mature. Come on, that's it. Apostolic Worship Center, you are mature people. God has grown you. God gives you words like these because he trusts you. I believe that God is giving you the ability through his Spirit to pull the supernatural into the natural realm because I can feel the desire in this room of those who want to live for him, those who want to be in love with him, those who want motivations to obey the love of the Father. It's in this room. There's health in this room. There's completion in this room. I believe wholeheartedly that the apostolic church is going to see more glory in the coming days because we understand sanctification. We have understood justification. We've just never been able to balance them until now. I believe God is going to help us balance the harmony between justified and sanctified. And now what is coming next is glorified. God's going to have you be covered in glory the way his servant Moses was. God's going to transfigure you the way he transfigured himself because you're his body. We're going to see a supernatural church walking into end time authority because we get no credit for it and we know that it's the love of the hand of God that's on us, that's doing the work.